Hello everyone, this is at Mr. Ibida Alex Chizik. And today on uh, the Hardcore Finance Podcast, we have our first guest, uh, Gil Yao. We're going to talk about how he sees the markets, his unique background brings an interesting perspective, and what he's going to invest in and how he seeks alpha, that extra tidbit of return on his investments. So without further ado, let's introduce Mr. Gil Yal. So Gil, Gil is a good friend of mine. Uh, Gil and I went, were both uh, in our MBA program together along with Shimon. And Gil has an incredible career of successful startups, investments, entrepreneurship, and has an incredibly unique perspective on the market. He first started out as a digital marketer. He has an MBA from Kellogg, which is where uh, we met. And throughout his whole life and Kellogg, he's been working on different startups. In 2010, he started pushing the idea of raising capital from celebrities, the folks like Leonardo DiCaprio, Lance Armstrong, Serena Williams. And this is to get and gain visibility for the companies that he was uh, investing in or working for to give that celebrity edge, if you will. Then in 2013, Gil became one of the world's most uh, foremost experts in, in uh, influencer marketing. And he started a company called Hyper, which was sold in April 2020. And Hyper basically focused on data-driven decision-making and finding the right influencers for brands. Today, he's one of the 30 of the most influential people in the world in influencer marketing. He's now the founder along with Dredrick Irving, which is Kyrie Irving's father, of a company called Starfund. Uh, and Starfund basically invests in consumer-focused startups and brings not only investment, but strategic celebrity appeal to uh, various startups. And he's even working with Silverstein Properties. These guys are the owners of the World Trade Center in New York uh, to help them think through different investments and lead uh, the thinking of the, about the future of the workspace post-COVID. So huge persona, huge bio, uh, Gil, welcome. And let me know if I'm missing anything from, uh, from, uh, your background. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Uh, no, I think you, you, uh, summarized it really well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Look, we're very excited to have you. The podcast we had uh, up until now where Shimon and I are discussing various ideas, and it's going to be good to have you on to get your perspective uh, you know, the market of investing and how you think about the world. So I gave the listeners a little bit of a background, but maybe in your words in a 30 seconds, you know, tell me a little bit about your journey in terms of you've done a lot of interesting things and a lot of your career is focused on the celebrity edge and that how that edge brings value to to companies. So talk a little bit about that. Does every company need a celebrity endorsement? Um, what kind of celebrity should people be looking for? Is it the A-list celebrity? Is it, you know, just an influencer that has maybe a hundred thousand Twitter followers, but is not any kind of A-list or B-list celebrity? How do, how do should companies think about when to go out and seek celebrity advice? It's interesting. You know, one of the, um, things in my career that's always defined me is that I try to think differently than what most people are thinking. And the challenge with, or maybe the biggest struggle for celebrity endorsements for influencer marketing is that it's an age old, you know, it's 300 year old idea of, you know, we'll get a famous name to, to 
promote and say that we have a great product and that's going to get people interested in uh, the world has evolved significantly to the point where you have different social networks you have influencers that you can now measure who their audience is you know they're not just famous that you actually know what they talk about what their audience engages with and who their audience is and so this whole space has become way more data driven way more sophisticated and it's hard to say that there's there's one answer. Uh, really, every company needs to have and build a strategy of its own around thought leaders and experts, uh, especially in the consumer world, you know, in the B2B space. Uh, there's room for thought leaders, but it's sometimes a little harder to find the right ones or to find the right channels to post. But as far as uh, consumer facing brands, I would say that it's rare to find a brand that doesn't need to have a thought leader or an influencer strategy. Um, but it's also very hard to say that there's one cookie cutter strategy that appeals to all. And if you look at, you know, success stories, you'll have all kinds of success stories from that one lone, super famous person who's the face of the brand or to companies that might have uh, thousands of micro influencers and no real uh, big name leading them. So um, it really, really depends on uh, what stage you're in, what you're trying to achieve and um more importantly, what the metrics that you really care about are. Because uh, influencers can contribute to sales, they can contribute to visibility, they can contribute to credibility if you're in a market where there's a lot of skepticism. Uh, for example, you know, if you're trying to sell a hair growth uh, solution, you know, the best way to do that is to show someone who is bald and now has hair. I don't know if there's a company that can do that, but you probably would do really well by finding, a, a, a you know, taking the rock and giving him a full head of hair. A lot of people would be interested <laughs> in that. Uh, and, the, and, and it's not just about the fame. It's also about the credibility that is created uh, when you do something like that. Uh, so it really varies on a case-by-case basis. And when I look at companies uh, as an investor and as an advisor, I always think first and foremost, um, not are, is a celebrity the right strategy, but like, what would I do? How would I really gain competitive advantage and make this company stand out within its uh, specific market by using well-known and, and appreciated, respected individuals in the space? Yeah, so this you brought up a lot of good points here. And so I want to pull these apart a little bit. And so we're now going to, you know, maybe take off our investor hats and put our founder hats and and thinking about building a business. And but this will tie into investment in a second. But let's say, you know, let's say you when you're starting a business, or you're trying to scale a business, you, like you mentioned, have many problems, you want to get scale, you want to get credibility, you obviously want to increase sales. And you should always be thinking about unit economics and profitability. Now, if you as a manager of a company have a war chest, X number of dollars, it doesn't matter. And let's say that going after a celebrity is the same cost profile as doing, let's say, performance marketing or other traditional types of marketing. I know that's not the case, but let's just assume it's the case for the start example experiment. Is there a certain... Uh, is there a certain... Uh, but let's say problem that you want to optimize getting a celebrity for like for so for example like you you mentioned if you're selling hair products you want credibility so you want to get the rock to grow hair all of a sudden you're solving for credibility right you're not necessarily solving for scale or maybe then you go out if you want to solve for scale get a celebrity that has a like ashton kutcher i don't know that has a ton of twitter followers how do you think about doing 
allocating an extra dollar towards a celebrity endorsement versus allocating an extra dollar towards a different or traditional, maybe more traditional marketing and why, you know, so for which problems the celebrities, are they just naturally better at solving versus your other marketing channels? So, you know, starting out, you know, where, where, where it's really important to have a presence is, is, uh, in when you're a consumer facing product. And I think we live in a world today where it's much easier to create a competing brand. Uh, the world is global. So almost every brand can become, or almost every consumer brand can become global through Amazon and, um, Shopify and other channels and you, and you, you can deliver. Um, so it used to be that you would have a restaurant. Um, you only competed with the restaurants that were nearby, right? So if I wanted Chinese food and I lived in a certain city or in a certain area, I could only compete with those restaurants. Now you're getting ghost kitchens and something you can order from a brand that may not have a location next to you. Um, and if you wanted products, you could go buy at the Target nearby, and now you have Amazon you can order from anywhere in the world. And so um, that allows comp- competitors to really create similar products very easily and um, they might have advantages such as cost structure and um, better branding, better appearance, uh, uh, or any any really other, um, way to stand out. Maybe they have a domain name that that really stands out. So celebrities come in and 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 they're part of a greater marketing solution. Meaning, I would never tell anyone, you know, don't do any digital marketing, just do celebrities. I don't think that's the way to do it. But I think what happens for a lot of these companies is that. You start with a digital marketing strategy. Uh, as we all know, um, those become more and more difficult as you you grow because you, your audience, the, the initial targeted audience uh, that's really interested in your product runs out relatively quickly and you start having to sell to d- tougher audiences and, and build your brand and get uh, recognized and you're competing in markets that are really, really tough. The celebrities in, or micro-influencers can help in several ways. One is they can create sales, which is really great, but really where we use them the most in a most effective manner is to see how we can improve the traditional digital marketing metrics that we're tracking. So what does it cost us to acquire a user through a traditional ad versus a video that's made with our celebrity in it? Um, and um, are, are we getting higher quality users? Are we able to get to users that otherwise wouldn't uh, have heard of us or would have chosen the competing product, but because we have um, differentiation and credibility that's generated through these types of people, um, are we getting better metrics? So it all comes down to those same metrics that you're you're used to seeing as a marketer anyways, and that measure the health of your marketing channels and the, and the pipeline that you you have, but what we try to do is leverage them to improve it. And, you know, it's, it's a really tough space as a digital marketer, Facebook, uh, Google, and, you know, very, very few other companies have a very, very strong grasp over this market and they're working to maximize their return, not your return, um, as a marketer. And so, um, it's just getting more and more competitive. The goal of, uh, Google is to make as much money as they can on each keyword and on each search term. And the goal for Facebook is to get the highest return um, for every audience that you can access through them. And so um, if you only focus on digital marketing, you and you tend to uh, limit your scale. Um, again, it doesn't apply to every market and there are certain markets mm-hmm. where where it's not as bad, but that's where it comes in. It's It's never a standalone strategy in my mind. But do, so let me ask you a kind of a quick question here. Do you believe that a celebrity or influencer marketing should be part of any marketers or any companies that wants to scale uh war chest, so to speak, or 
you know, marketing a tool in their marketing tool bag? I think you you can't afford not to have it at this point if you're if you're going direct to consumer. If you're going B two B, it's a whole new story. Uh, it's much harder to do influencer marketing for a variety of reasons. We can talk about that if that's interesting, but it's, it's definitely a more complex environment. But um, today, you can assume that your competitors are using influencers to get to the audience, um, and it's demonstrated that if done correctly, then those competitors will get better metrics than you can. The last, you know, real, you know, if you if you boil it down to the bottom line, if it costs your competitors less money to acquire customers, or if they can acquire a larger amount of customers for the same budget, uh, that's a really bad situation to be in. Um, now it varies, you know, if you have a lifestyle business and you're trying to reach a million dollars in sales, you don't necessarily have to have influencers. Uh, you could reach that through traditional digital marketing. Uh, and it's, it's probably not going to be cost effective to work with big name celebrities. Um, mm-hmm. if you have, you know, if you're, if you have big aspirations, you want to get, uh, recognized uh, worldwide, then you probably have some kind of layer of influencer or, uh, celebrity involvement. It doesn't, you know, celebrity involvement in the traditional sense, you don't necessarily have to have it. Most companies don't have it until they're really big, but, um, influencers, people who will speak on your behalf, people who will respond, whether they're micro, you know, really small people, but they're still your biggest ambassadors. Almost every company has it. And, um, it's not a new concept. I mean, Microsoft did it 30 years ago with their, with the people who would, you know, who were certified to be Microsoft. Uh, professionals to help people who struggled on their, you know, with, with software um, by making them a, a advocates and ambassadors. So it doesn't have to be that influencers are necessarily famous. So that's, that's an interesting thought um, that you compare the Microsoft's, uh, they're called the VAR, so value-added resellers, yep. their strategy that they've employed, and they, Microsoft employs this, this strategy quite, quite well. Uh, it's actually probably the gold standard among all the companies, especially tech companies that I know that uses this huge army of second or, or you know third parties that go ahead and push their software. Um, but but it's an interesting it's an interesting perspective for sure. Have you seen where influencers or celebrities have taken a company astray? So where you know horror stories were <laughs> terribly wrong. Yeah, I mean, I did. I did a deal with Lance Armstrong um, maybe three or four weeks before he uh, confessed or was caught with a, you know, with, had the drunk confession. Uh, so you know, I got to live through it very, very uh, vividly. Um, and you, you, you know, as a company at that point, you have to either embrace it or like completely reject it. So a lot of his sponsors at that point, you know, kind of turned away from him. We were a smaller company. We could, you know, we couldn't really, we couldn't really do much. Um, so what we did is, um, you know, we decided to embrace it and we said, okay, we're going to, um, we're going to take photos of every part of this journey because it's a historical journey. It's an interesting journey of how he's dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that led to, um, uh, a very good relationship with him, you know, at a time where he wasn't doing as, as well as he could have. Um, now, of course, you That's see the understatement of the century. <laughs> yeah, you see, you see. My, you know, I'm being careful here because I still want to maintain that relationship. But, but you, you know, you, you see cases where it's very hard to recover. You know, where where violence or drugs or really embarrassing behavior um, really harms the brand. Um, but I, I think we've gotten more and more patient with our celebrities. Uh, we've seen. I forget which celebrity it was that was licking. Uh, donuts at a store and everybody forgot about it a week later. 
people cheat, people, you know, go to prostitutes and people kind of forget it the next week. And maybe it's just the shock value has gone down. You know, there's just a story now about Jay Alvarez and his sex tape. And people are already talking about what a genius move it was where Kim Kardashian, uh, who did it, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago, got a lot of criticism for it. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting perspective of how social norms uh, have changed and how, uh, you know, they're still kind of right or wrong. Don't do, you know, stupid things. And, um, but the shock value of sex tapes for sure. I remember Paris Hilton sex tape and back in the day that was, you know, scandal among scandals. Um, but now again, you know, I feel like if a celebrity puts out a sex tape, it's almost intentional. Yeah. And I, and you know, one of the things is really what kind of brand are you, you know, not every brand is squeaky clean. Yeah, I I, I I totally totally hear you there. So let let's uh, let's change uh, topics a bit and talk a little bit about. So you're investing now and you're looking and evaluating companies. Um, what do you what do you look for? You know, in startups and and maybe take the listeners from some of the basics. I'm sure you you know lowering cost of acquisition, CAC, uh, increasing lifetime value, uh, LTV of customers. But beyond the unit economics, you know, what special ingredient do you look for? What's going to signal to you that, hey, this company is about to maybe take off and I think I want to make a bet here? So, you know, for, for Star Fund specifically, which we said we have a very specific formula that's worked for us before. Uh, and the idea is very is, is actually really simple. It's, you know, um, we, we're in a world where it's, it's not very hard to create consumer products. It's very hard to make them stand out. And so what we, what we look for in a company is a few things. Um, forget anything to do with the, the founder, forget, you know, all the natural stuff that everybody's looking at. And, and let's talk about the unique stuff that we look at. So the biggest Gil, question, sorry, I'm going to talk to you for one second in 30 seconds. Tell us about the, tell the listeners about the, 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 the standard stuff, because just to bring everyone on the same page. Yeah. So, you know, of course we look at um, the basic things, you know, do we have a great founder? Um, do we have a product that is unique, that has um, positive qualities that will actually be valuable and helpful to that customer? Um, do we, have we recognized and identified marketing channels that are going to be effective um, so that if we do raise capital, we know where to spend that. Are we able to create inventory at the right pace? Um, it's probably different than a lot of other companies, but we're very consumer focused. So um, the questions that we often come come across are those. Um, so, for example, you know, it's very hard for us to invest in, say, weed related pro- products, even though that's been legalized in a lot of the U.S. because it's so hard to market them. Um, the social networks and Google are making it tough, and it's just a problem that's bigger than us. Um, so we have we, we basically try to understand the thesis behind it, understand what their unit economics are, what does it cost them to create a product, what does it cost them to uh, get it from the factory door to door? Can they do that at scale? And does does the cost increase or decrease when they do that? And then, uh, uh, assuming all that happens, how would they spend the capital that we're able to give them to grow rapidly? Uh, mm-hmm. And then, and then now we go kind of to the less. Standard, but what we basically our strategy is very simple. Um, we look for a company that's shown initial sales that have a unique product that needs um, 
that's in a market that's that's proven, meaning they don't need to, it's not, we don't typically invest in, oh, I invented a new spacesuit and some in, in five years everybody's gonna need it. We we invest in companies that have something that they could sell tomorrow. But it may be competitive. There might be inferior products in the market. There might be a history of um the market um having you know low quality products that have caused people to stop believing in them uh or or in this market or thinking that everything's a scam. And that we know that by bringing in the right celebrity, and this is the really, really important thing, the right celebrity or the right influencers, we can create both visibility and credibility. Um, and then what we look at is, do we have the ability to do that in the market? Do we believe that we can find that right celebrity? We can get them engaged enough uh, to create interest in that market. Um, and, um, and, and and the goal is really simple. You know, we have a 12-month plan for every company we invest in, which is very quick. You know, we, the product's already on the market. Um, we we build a very credible and manageable direct-to-consumer marketing channel. And then we layer on top of it very heavy celebrity endorsements. So visibility, credibility, bring in the, all the guns together with the idea of generating a name for the brand. And uh, once we reach a certain milestone, say a million dollars a month in sales, approaching um, the uh, uh, retail partners and saying, look, we have a brand that could drive people through your door. People are looking for us online. Look how fast we've grown. Um, you want to have this brand at your store. Um, because really, that's the virtuous cycle we're looking for. When, when you you can have a great online product, but if you're not in stores, people for, you're always fighting for people to remember you. The good thing about being in stores is that people walk into the store looking for your brand, so the, the store's happy about it. And then when they get to the brand, um, they look it up online, so they remember that you can sell it online. And it creates uh, a one plus one equals three. Um, and the goal is within 12 months to be in retail uh, with each one of the brands that we invest in. So is it the wrong time to tell you that I invented an incredible, incredible spacesuit? That in five years you're definitely gonna need. <laughs> Should I? Is this the wrong time to tell you I'm afraid of heights? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, then maybe someone else will need the spacesuit. So you brought up you brought up a couple of interesting points there, and I, and I want to tease them apart. Um, two points in particular. One point you said, "Hey, we, we know we want to bring in the celebrity," and obviously this has been the topic and thesis of the discussion. But a celebrity that's going to amplify the business. Do you ever run into a case or how do you control for a case where let's say celebrity over amplifies the business is it, it, it's almost like a good problem to have. But because of that, the supply chain and the inventory and the infrastructure of this smaller business can't keep up. And what happens is customers get disillusioned, right? Because they ordered a product and it says it's going to get there at a certain point, but then it takes longer and longer and longer. You know, the reviews become bad yeah. just because all the time. Yeah. So how do you control just, for that? How do you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, look, I just turned down a company that is, you know, without talking about what they do, they basically have a version of the homemade coffee machine for a different product, which I won't say, I won't say what it is, but I would love to have one. It's just that it's very clear to me that these are very complicated to make and it's going to be hard to sell them at the, if, if we're, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we're successful, we're going to fail because I just know it's going to be impossible to sell millions of these without resources that I can't provide. You know, I'm not able to provide $50 million uh, to a company. So I have to know my own limitations. Um, and so w the products that we tend to invest in, 
Um, we, we do a lot of, a lot of our due diligence comes into the question of, can you produce a lot of this really quickly? Um, and that's a big, big question in, in, in the process. Again, not because we don't think you can make a lot of money on complex products. In fact, you can. It's just beyond our scope of expertise. Um, you know, we're marketers. We're, we're a fund of marketers. We're a fund of, um, we, we, we don't know much about operations. We don't, you know, we don't get involved in the day to day management of the company and in, in the, um, in, in the operation, in the, in the product, uh, chain from when it's built to, to the point where it gets to the customer. Um, we kind of want to see that the company has those capabilities as a prerequisite, um, mainly because we just don't know how to do it. Um, so in ironically, you know, a lot of founders will do this. They'll, they'll overcreate inventory early on because they overestimate their sales and we'll meet companies like that where they have a great product, but it's just hard to get to the market. And so they have a lot of inventory that for us is actually a plus. So, you know, the, the founders will sometimes be apologetic about it. You know, they'll say, you know, we have a lot of inventory and, and, and I'll say, you know, I, you know, it would have been better not to have built this, but you know, the good thing is, um, it's actually, it's actually a check mark for us as, okay, I'm not worried about running out of product. Of course, unless it's a, you know, it's got a short life cycle. That's, that's, that's super interesting. These two points, and I want to push on these a little bit because traditionally, um, my philosophy and, and, um, for the listeners, I grow in a couple of businesses, end up selling a few of them, uh, myself on my, uh, previous life and my younger days, so to speak. But my philosophy when I work on scaling businesses is I'm, I'm nervous about inventory actually. So there's, you definitely need to be able to scale and scale quickly and you have to test for that, right? You kind of have to test me, stress test the system. But if I would come to a business and see a lot of inventory laying out there, that's bad news. Actually, it's what? That's bad news, right? It's bad news because it, exactly, because it raises a flag of why isn't it turning, why isn't it moving? Right. And what you see it as a positive. So that's very, that's very well, interesting. I, I, I would say, I mean, it would be better if they told me I, I made, you know, $10 million in inventory and I sold it all, but then they'd probably be too expensive for me to invest in. And, mm-hmm. um, we could, it, it happens to be the problem that I know how to solve. So, so it's a good, it's a good match, but, um, it's not, it's, it's not the end of the, I mean, over projecting your sales is something that I think, in the world of even, you know, you've worked for big companies. I worked for some big companies. They do that all the time. Um, you know, I, I remember working for Dell, uh, during the summer of our, uh, of my, uh, you know, my second, between my first and second year at, at Kellogg and, uh, they just released, I forget what it was called. It was like a tablet at the time, right after, you know, the mm-hmm. iPad came out. And I, you know, I was just shocked at the fact that we didn't know how to project how many we're going to sell. And by the way, we sold way less than we projected. Uh, and that was, you know, for, for Dell, which is, you know, the opposite of a startup and a company that has all the resources in the world. Um, and so it's, it, it's not, to me, it's not something that you can reasonably expect the founder to project at that point. Uh, which, you know, touches on financials in general. You know, a lot of founders tell me I'm, I'm worried about giving you my financials because I don't want you to think I'm too optimistic or too. And really, I just look at them to understand, you know, what are, what, how, how do you think about this business? You know, what do you exactly. think it's going to acquire a customer? I'm not expecting you to really project what's going to happen in three years. You know, if you could do that, you don't, you wouldn't need me. You'd be a billionaire. 
Yeah, when I was at uh, one of these aforementioned big companies that you talked about, uh, I would I did some M and A deals, and when I would look at typically when I look at companies and I look at projections, you know, I think okay, fifty percent of it is complete bullshit, mm-hmm. and everyone's going to show a hockey stick. But for me, it's 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 similar to what you're saying, slightly different. I I look to think to see if the th- if the thought process was there. Did they check off all the boxes? Right? Did they think about these things? Did they at least project- exactly? Did they realize that, you know, past a certain level of production, they need another factory, right? Exactly. Did they, did they, did they realize, you know, that um, once they sell outside the U.S., there's a tariff? I don't know. You know, there's, 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 there are all kinds of things that really you want, you want to see that they thought it through. Um, and the hockey stick is, you know, is great. I mean, when business is really hit it, but let's, let's be honest, you know, it's, it's a rare exactly. sighting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So the other one, the other point I want to push push on is your, you know, the thought process of getting things into stores. And to me, you know, certain products definitely deserve shelf space. Um, And they, these are kind of mass products and it, and retail is a great channel. Although retail is not cheap and we can go into, I think without um, going too deep into this, but you know, you have to kind of, there's, you have to sell on consignment you have to pay to be to be in you know various parts of the in the store then you you know end cap or not so there's a whole economics model right and you know this better than anyone of what it takes to be in a retail store that to me says just take a bite out of my margin and why can't i do the exact same thing online like what does retail give me uh, for for most products, not all products. Some products, again, definitely deserve to be in the store because it's just you got to touch it, feel it, and and it just sells itself versus something that's maybe online you can't experience. But if you don't need to experience it, why be in retail like that? To me, that's I would push on that and say, why cut my margin? Why even have a headache of someone dealing with all the bullshit that retail brings to the table if you can just sell direct to consumer online? Well, I think, you know, it varies by product, obviously, but there's a virtuous cycle of being in the store that's really important to, to keep track of. It's, it's a signal to a buyer. You know, the brand that's in the store um, is, tends to be viewed as, you know, higher quality, as it's been vetted to a certain degree. Now, the way you get into the store is really important. Like at the end of the day, shelf space is really important to stores and they view products in two ways. They see them as somebody that drives customers into the store, something, you know, really more than two ways, but you know, either it drives customers into the store, you know, like milk, right? You're going to go into the supermarket. Uh, it might be a loss leader. They may even sell it at, at a loss uh, for that. They view it as a product that uh, you just have to have, you know, you know, if you're going to be, uh, you just have to have Apple at your store. You may not be making a lot of money on selling Apple products because they're so strong, but you can't have like an electronics store and not have Apple products or, or it's very hard to do that. And then they view products as like an experiment, you know, let's see how this sells and what kind of uh, velocity we can see for this product. What we try to do, what our, what our goal is to come in and be in that first category because of the celebrity and because of the fact that people, um, there's a lot of hype around the product. When we come into the stores, we say, look, we're going to bring you foot traffic because this celebrity is going to be talking about this this entire year. You're going to get free publicity all the time. And, and you know, so we do sign exclusivity deals. We're going to say, um, you know, we're going to say that it's only available at this retailer. And um, that's an important, you know, it's kind of a really weird 
world. And I always compare it to like the MBA programs. I don't know how many MBA programs you applied to before you ended up choosing Kellogg, but I applied to, to four and I had, you know, four additional ones I would have applied to if I didn't get into one of my top schools. I ended up getting into Kellogg. So, and then, you know, the bowl kind of flips, you know, from you praying that a school accepts you now, they're really hoping that you accept them. So, so it, because they don't, they want to have a high acceptance rate and, you know, other things. So, um, it's kind of the same way with these products where there you want to be in that category of products where the stores really want you there. And then the, the, that affects everything that affects the, the business model that affects the costs and it affects the scale. And at the end of the day, I, I, for a lot of products, it's very hard to get massive scale without having the support of retail, not for every product. Um, and they're, you know, they're definitely products that don't need it specialty products, you know, high fashion, um, designers who are working on their own brands might not need it. Um, their own fashion brands or beauty brands, they might not need it. But at the end of the day, even if you look at like uh, brands like Kylie Cosmetics and, you know, the biggest influencers in the world, which have their own brands, they end up going into retail because there's just only so much you can sell online because it's so easy to, to price shop and to see alternatives and uh, people want to try stuff on and you want to have that location where people can experience it beyond just what the influencer is saying. So um, it really depends. And, you know, you know that the deal that Kylie Cosmetics gets is not the deal that an average uh, beauty brand gets when they, when they speak to Sephora or to Ulta Beauty or whichever, I don't know what store they're in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So look, I this is it's a it's a it's a great perspective about the. I love the analogy of you know first you seek them out and then they seek you out and then and then it becomes this. It, it's almost it's it's a game really, and who holds up her hand and you know when do you play your cards and how do you negotiate? Um, well, we can talk about negotiating theory <laughs> at length probably for hours here. For sure. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a question of creating scarcity. And if you're just another one of a lot of beauty brands, you're not going to get in the store or you're going to have to pay a high price to get into the store. If you're the only one that's, you know, Kylie Cosmetics, then all the stores are going to want you in there. So let's let's take this and, and kind of zoom out a little bit and think from a macro perspective. So, uh, you know, obviously there are many asset classes to invest in and, I do want to ask you about how you think about, you know, allocating a generic portfolio or even your portfolio of, you know, between index funds, different stocks, you know, investing money into startups, uh, crypto or, or whatnot. But before that, you know, if, a, if our, one of our listeners or if a person out there wants to get exposure to startups, there are, I guess, traditional paths of angel investors, which are, you know, very early kind of supporters of a company that are willing to roll up their sleeves and help a company uh, get going. Venture capital a little bit later, which is, you know, where you play, uh, look for you know, kind of quick returns over the course of three, four, five years. Many rounds of venture capital, you become big, you go to private equity, and then you go to the public markets. That's typically a very rough path here. But if an average person out there wants to get exposure to startups, can they? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is to like join a group. You know, there are angel groups. There are, you know, don't don't allocate more than you're willing to lose, and and don't put it all on one deal. I think the biggest mistakes I see people doing is saying, "Okay, I have a hundred thousand dollars that I want to allocate to this. Let me find a startup and give them a hundred thousand. Where really you want to you want variety, and you want to start creating a peer group that you can invest with. Um, 
And ideally, you also want to find a mentor. So in the best case scenario, you have somebody who's done a few deals or has done a lot of deals, who's willing to cut you in onto their deals and let you see and you work for free for them. Really, you know, you say, okay, let me, let me tell me what I can do to help you. And then, you know, let me write in a small check into the deals that you're doing. I think that's a great way to do it. And at the end of the day, it, 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 it's very easy to be, you know, be, see this shiny new startup and be very excited about it. But when you see a lot of them, uh, you start getting numb to some of the things that get you excited and you understand that they're not that rare or that while they're exciting, they're still a long way from there to success. So, you know, in an ideal scenario, you, you, you either work with someone who's already done the legwork to, you know, to kind of gain from their experience. You join a group that's looking at a lot of startups so that you're not limited to your own deal flow and you don't write a check very quickly. You know, you, you look at a lot of opportunities or you, you find that person that you trust and you join them. Eventually you can start writing them on your own, but, uh, it's very easy to lose a lot of money this way if you, if you just kind of, invest in startups without really understanding what's behind them or, or seeing a lot of other uh, startups in the category. Um, you know, I personally, I'm, I'm not a huge investor you know, I don't invest, you know, $50 million in the company. I don't have that kind of capital. Uh, so I do some, a lot of smaller investments and that's, um, that's how my portfolio works. I happen to have a brother who's, uh, exact, the exact opposite. Uh, he's a financial manager invests in the stock market. So we kind of share, we basically have a joint pool. You know, I invest in the, I do the startup stuff. He does the more, so, um, safe and uh, traditional stock market stuff. And then I made him invest a little bit in Bitcoin initially to his dismay, but you know, he's happy now. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think I kind of look at it this way. You know, you have a pool of money, and a lot of people have said this before. You have a pool that you need, don't touch it. You have a pool that you invest in solid stuff. You know, real estate, uh, stock market, in, in you know, within a conservative environment in the stock market. And then you have the money that you would you would be willing to spend on a, on a very on a vacation, or you'd be willing to, um, or you'd be willing to gamble away if you had to. Right. So, and that's the kind of money that you want to take into the startup world and into um, this place. And, you know, for me, working with the founders, um, get, enjoying their excitement, seeing them grow their companies is much more fun than going on a cruise. So, you know, if you're that type of person, then, then go into this world. So but what, what type of returns should uh, the investor seek after how many years? And, and so there's, I guess, three elements. What, returns in terms of percentage right or you can maybe explain what cash on cash means and then after how many years and how many of the startups that i would invest in or or investor would invest in need to hit so to speak like 10 startups you know x fail you know two are okay one hits what's what's the what are those ratios Right. So we have to keep in mind something really important about startup investing. So much of what happens to a startup has nothing to do with anything you as the investor or the founder can even do. It's, it's, you know, who expected COVID? Uh, and that's changed, you know, 90% of the startups in the world have completely changed over the last year. And, you know, some of them benefited from it. Some of them were destroyed by it and, you know, who could have predicted it? And so there's so much macro that you can't expect that the only way to really be successful over a long time is to have a portfolio and understand that, you know, macro events are going to affect your companies differently. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're thinking of getting into this space, you need a few things. One is you need patience. It's very rare to see a return very quickly. Um, 
Two is you need to have some high tolerance for risk. If you're the kind of person who's going to make it harder for the founder because you're worried about your cash, you're going to call them every other day. You probably just shouldn't go into this world. You know, there are other places where you could sleep better and the founder can, you know, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be the right place for you to be. So um, in general, it's, you need to be the type of person who's a little adventurous and ready to do this. And now the returns can be very significant if you, if you, get lucky if things work your way. And the reason the, the reason is, you know, it's just simple math. You know, we come into companies typically below a $10 million investment uh, valuation. We try to go at a $5 million valuation usually. So relatively early stage um, and, you know, very quickly raise their valuation. Now it's a valuation on paper because you can't always cash out, which is something you have to remember. But if we bring a company from say $200,000 a year in sales to 2 million or, or 20 million, that significantly impacts the valuation, sometimes 10x, sometimes 20x, and sometimes more, depending on, on the product. So you can make a very, very big return with the understanding that that's not going to happen with every company. You're probably, if you do 10 companies, you know, statistics show that, you know, six or seven will completely fail. You know, one or two will give you a reasonable return and one will give you a really, really good return. So you want to have a 10x or a 20x or a, a, a 30x. And different funds have different strategies to achieve that, you know, the bigger you get, the bigger the exits you need. So, you know, because we come in so early, a fifty million sale, a fifty million dollars sale for us is a ten x return. You know, so what other funds would view as a complete failure for us is great. You know, I mean, I made ten times on on the investment. Um, uh, so the strategy really, really varies. Uh, we we like to go early stage. Um, we like to. You know, I, I do want someday, you know, when I, if I have a bigger fund and if we have more money to invest, go a little later stage, you know, so the Series A. Um, but we really think of it as, as multiple. So when we invest in a company, we assume that a lot of stuff can go wrong um, and that our job is to the only value we can bring the founder is if we make his life easier or their life easier. Right. If we if we're going to make their life harder, then it's not a good deal for either side. It's not a good place for us to park our money and it's not a good place for them to be working. So if we can bring real value in our case, and every fund has different value, if we can bring real value because we have the celebrities or, you know, you happen to be an expert in their space. So if it's a medical and you're a doctor, if it's a medical startup and you might know stuff about that, that could help them. Or if you have connections with the types of people that they need to work, you can create real value for them. That's a good opportunity to do it, but you have to be to understand that you have to do it at scale. If you're just going to do one or two, odds are they're going to fail, um, and you're going to lose your money. So you really have to have the ability to ideally spread over at least twenty startups over a period of three or four years, if you really want to see this as more than a fun little adventure. So I love what you said there. Uh, I want to zoom out, but I love and I want to underscore what you said because I couldn't agree with you more. And I think people miss this is that, you know, if you're an investor or vice versa, if you're a startup founder, you want to get an investor that's going to be good for you. Not only is going to write a check, but that's going to be strategically good, open doors and so on. And what you said is you're there to make the founder's life easier and if you're not, and if you're calling every single day and saying, what's this and what's happening with the profit and blah, blah, you shouldn't be in this game. And I, and that is, you know, it sounds like a, you know, of course, statements, you know, sounds very obvious. Yet when, you know, you're in it and 
the markets are moving and macro environments are moving. And a lot of times, like in any startup, there's a big element of luck that makes something succeed. And you just need one big sale and the customer's waffling or whether they're going to you know, buy or not. There's tension and there's pressure. And it's really easy to, you know, to kind of default to the bad, your bad demons, if you will, and start putting pressure and saying, well, do more and sell more and, you know, be more instead of thinking, okay, I, I, how can I be more helpful? And I think this is key, right? Can you hold your shit together, frankly, through the hard moments, right? Through the moments of kind of pain and pressure. And, um, and when you don't know whether, which way luck will break your way or not. There's also the issue of humility. You know, I think as an investor, we see a lot of deals and we tend to think that we're becoming experts. But the truth is that no one's a bigger expert in this company than the founder. And they're, they're spending, you know, 100% of their time. They're the ones up at night. And we're spending, you know, initially maybe, you know, a significant amount of hours helping them get set up. But on the day to day, you know, we're getting updated once a month or once a quarter or whatever it is. And we're there when they need help. But you know, we just don't understand the business to the level that they do, even if on our spreadsheets, it looks like we do. And, you know, there's that story. I forget what the name of the company is that did like press juices, uh, out West. And, um, um, you know, a lot of the big funds invested in it. And the idea was it was a machine that would do, uh, would press juices and, and you would press uh, fresh fruit and it would make juices for you. And it was healthy, drinks and everything it was all on brand and everything but at some point they decided that instead of pressing the juices they'll make a package that is like already pressed and you just put it in the device which effectively made it so that you could just squish it with your hand um and so this is a great example of you know i'm sure the founder knew that this was not a good move but i i would imagine that they got pressured into it uh because on paper that looks great it's it's much cheaper to produce you know it has a much longer shelf life, but the founder could have told them, look, this makes us like every other machine out there. Um, I think you're talking about Juicero? Yeah, Juicero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, sometimes a spreadsheet makes a lot of sense, but uh, being on the ground floor, you know, we can all be great coaches watching on TV, but if you have to bring up the ball and, and run the play, you know a lot of things that we don't. Sure. Well, look, when you when you think about the market today, right, um, zooming out a little bit further, what what are some, you know, how do you think about, you know, stocks, real estate, bonds, Bitcoin or other crypto startups? You know, how do you think about allocating uh, a, a portfolio? And again, we're not financial advisors and neither are you. We're just, you know, how you think about your own investments. And do you do you see any trends in the market you know maybe sub trends if you will that are starting to bubble up that will become big movers in the future that people should capitalize on yeah i mean like you said don't view this as advice i think it varies from person to person my perspective is you know i i'm a big believer in bitcoin i do not believe in any other coins uh to the point where i would put any meaningful money in them but again not not as an expert but just at the high level i think um you know, I've held Bitcoin for several years now. Uh, I'm, you know, somewhat notoriously known for a big sale I made when when my when my startup was really struggling. That would have been worth a lot of money today, but thank you. Should, I think you should tell us the anecdotal story. I think. I think. Yeah. So you know, I was running hyper, uh, uh, and you know, there've been ups and downs. There were great periods, tough periods. Um, this was I. I had bought twenty five Bitcoin. 
um, very early or relatively early, you know, at around, I think I spent about $10,000 to get them. So around $400 um, at the advice of a friend who had been nagging me to buy them when, you know, they really, they were, I could have bought them at $40 if I'd listened, but I didn't because um, I thought he was crazy. And um, I kind of put them aside and I was running a startup and the startup hadn't been, you know, I was really struggling to raise capital, struggling to pay salaries and Bitcoin had gone up a little bit. I think it was probably worth, I don't know, close to a thousand dollars, maybe a little less. And I had no choice. I made a, a you know, I, at some point I said, I can't pay my rent if I don't sell this Bitcoin stuff. So I sold about 80% of that portfolio, um, which would have been worth today. <laughs> Yeah, $750,000. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would have been worth a lot of money. Um, but, you know, that's that's life. You know, I'm looking at the part that I kept as, as what I'm happy about. And um, uh, that's exactly it. You know, I mean, I could I could decide that I'm going to wallow and, and say, oh, man. Or, you know, I use this story as a, less, as a cautionary tale to people that there's a cost to running a startup. And sometimes it's not exactly visible. If I had just accepted that job at, uh, you know, Zynga that I got after school, probably would have had the cash to, um, <laughs> to keep on the Bitcoin. Maybe I would have had more Bitcoin, who knows, but, um, or I would have never met that friend who told me to buy Bitcoin. So who knows? But, um, I have a, I have a similar story, but it's, uh, it's even kind of worse. I, I went in early and I actually got Shimon, uh, into this and later on, right as after the the ICO, which is initial coin offerings in 2017, Shimon was like, listen, exit all your positions, go to Bitcoin, go to Bitcoin. And I was thinking, no, these things will rebound. And I was, uh, these are calculated risks that some of these will rebound. I was so stupid. I should have listened to him way back then. Oh, I made plenty of mistakes, but I always do it with a, like, a, I always like kiss that, you know, I imagine myself burning that, that money, not a lot of money, you know, I've done, I've invested, you know, a few thousand dollars here and there in other coins. They've always ended up the same. So I, I I'm just assuming that if there is a, a um, another coin that's going to do really, really well, I'm not the guy who knows enough about finding it. Um, mm -hmm. So, so, and then, you know, there's a value of market leadership. I mean, obviously Bitcoin is a market leader. So investing in a market leader is always, um, has its advantages. It's not always the right move, but it, but it definitely has its advantages. So my, my advice, you know, again, if, you know, if, if you just talk, look at me as, you know, when I invested in Bitcoin, I assumed I'm going to lose that money. Um, you know, I got really lucky because I invested really without any education. I just trusted somebody who told me to do it. Um, and um, so I would say to people, you know, you, if you, it depends which part of your money you're investing. If it's money that's really important to you, do not invest that way. Um, invest in a solid, uh, go to the stock market, go to real estate. Real estate is interesting right now, obviously with COVID and depending on where you go. Uh, you know, the other hat I wear is the kind of the future of the workplace with Silverstein properties. So, you know, and you may have heard, you know, we've made some massive acquisitions right now because things are really, really cheap. So it depends on, you know, we just bought the the tallest building in LA and um, for, you know, almost half a billion dollars. So it's, if you're the, your profile is of a cash rich investor, you can take different risks. And if you really believe in the market um, for traditional people who are thinking about investing their savings or need to be more, um, need to be more uh, conservative with how they do it. I think you really want to find someone that, can guide you that you really trust to help you. It could be a professional relationship. It could be a friendly relationship, but don't enter these markets, especially the riskier markets without holding hands with somebody and, and doing it alongside 
with them, that's something I really, really believe in. Um, if you're investing with someone else who's investing uh, that knows more about you than you're, you're trading on their expertise and their uh, knowledge, you're, you're in a better position than just jumping in. So, or, uh, or just listen to hardcore finance to the podcast that listens that's to all the, all the good friends that we're going to bring on. <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, uh, uh, you know, obviously I'm not an, I'm not a, an investment advisor or professional or anything like that. I'm also not, you know, like Warren Buffett where I can say, oh, I've made so much money investing that you should copy what I do. But um, my brother has a smart saying, which I probably, he probably stole from Warren Buffett, but he's like, he's like, first and foremost, I try not to lose money. Once I got that handled, then let's talk about earning money. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a smart way for most people. Um, Unless, you, you know, if you're Mark Cuban, you can take a lot of risky investments. Some of them will work out, some of them won't. Well, look, uh, on this note, um, I think I want to thank you for your time and uh, we can start wrapping the conversation up. But any any parting thoughts, tidbits, words of wisdom, funny stories, uh, celebrity stories or, or other that you'd like to uh, impart? I'll tell a funny, you know, first of all, it's been you know, so much fun to talk to you always fun to talk to you and then actually having it recorded. So now I can listen to it and hear how awful my voice sounds. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's, I don't know if you remember this, you know, when, when, when I just started hyper, you know, the biggest challenge was how do you get attention? And you, we, we talked a little bit about the issue with celebrities, um, you know, misbehaving or, or getting in trouble. And one of the things that we did initially with hyper, we introduced to the market, this idea that you can analyze the audience of influencers. So it's not how many followers they have, but, who is the audience? What are they talking about? Um, and how engaged they are. And actually, there's a very vocal uh, voice in the industry not to do this. People said to me, you're going to kill your company because celebrities are going to look at it and say, no, this is untrue. Or, um, you know, no, I have a different audience. I have an audience in Brazil and you're not representing that. And so we built these tools and we released them. And I said, I, I'm praying that that happens. And every time a celebrity would come out or an influencer would come out and say, these reports are nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity for me to get an audience. You know, I didn't want to make them look bad. I would just say, you know, here's how we do the research. We'd love to get your input onto it. But suddenly we were talking and we were on their level. So one of the things that celebrities allow you to do is look a lot bigger than you really are. So, you know, when I'm not going to say the names, you guys can research it. But when certain influencers came out against and said, you can't trust this data, uh, we have much better audience, I have 20 million followers and they're so strong. Um, the fact that they even mentioned us as something that they don't trust <laughs> actually got us in the conversation. And then, you know, you start getting to those phone calls from reporters anytime that they're writing about this stuff. So leveraging celebrities isn't necessarily just them being pretty on the package. Sometimes them getting in trouble or them doing uh, things that create attention. If you're using it the right way, it could be really valuable. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's super powerful. This is a uh, growth hacking before growth hacking became a popular buzz term. <laughs> it's just, yeah. yeah, it's great. It's almost like a saying that said uh, back in the day. It said, "No press is bad press. Like any press, essentially, is good." And you're just getting free, uh, free attention, free free time in the limelight. And um, well, we have a lot of very many recent political examples of how this has paid dividends to uh, to certain political uh, figures in the U.S. over the last four years. You, you reminded me of a story. <laughs> that I don't remember how long ago this was, but I used to call this the grenade. So 
uh, early on, you know, I was, I was kind of making, when I was just beginning my career, I was trying to make money and people wanted me to drive traffic. It was a less sophisticated time and I needed to drive very quick traffic to this page. Um, I, I forget what it was, but I needed to drive traffic to it and I didn't really, you know, have a budget to do it and I had to find really cheap ways to do it. And it just so happened that Oprah had announced that she's uh, retiring uh, <laughs> a few days earlier or something like that. So I, I built this uh, fake sh- account on on uh, Facebook <laughs> or I forget what, you know, and, I, I, and, and, I, and I, the account was, you know, that Oprah sucks and that I'm happy. The whole account was about how uh, Oprah sucks and I'm happy that she retired and good riddance. And then I went on all these Facebook groups for Oprah <laughs> and posted it. And I said, and if you want to, you know, if you want to, it was some kind of clickbait. I forget what it was. It was something about like, if you want to hear more, you know, click here. And the amount of, you know, so I called it like the grenade. You, you go into these discussion groups, you post something really annoying. Everybody wants to, so who, to see who this idiot is, but then they go on to the landing page that you want and you put advertising and other stuff around it. So yeah, marketing, you know, I really, I'm attracted to the indirect or, or kind of the, uh, different ways to get attention. It doesn't necessarily have to be mm-hmm. uh, the template version of, you know, let's stick a face on it with a smile and say that they endorse it. I love it. I love it. And there's so many stories that I do exactly this. And uh, <laughs> for anyone listening, this is a, a good way of uh, trolling your way, getting your way into fame. To notoriety. <laughs> and to notoriety. Well, look, Gil, I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Hopefully we can have you on again. And, um, and yeah, this is, this has been great. I think a lot of very good and interesting, interesting tidbits. Um, uh, about how to growth hack your way and really how to analyze businesses, how to look for growth and how to think about celebrity endorsements, maybe in a new light. Thanks so much for having me. It's so much fun. And yeah, anytime I'd love to come back on. Fantastic. Fantastic.